You are listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. On this episode of the Bottom Line podcast, I'll be chatting with Dr. John Deng, a gastroenterologist whose specialist area is that of IBD or inflammatory bowel disease. Dr. Ding is passionate about patient-centric care, as well as communicating the importance to patients of a good bowel prep to deliver optimal colonoscopy outcomes. He holds the position of head of the IBD Clinical Trials Unit at St. Vincent's Hospital, as well as lead for the National Bowel Cancer Program. Huge thanks for joining us today on the Bottom Line podcast, John. You're a gastroenterologist, and today we're chatting with you to gain your perspective as a healthcare professional and for you to share some of your insights and tips that could assist Australians understand bowel cancer as well as giving us an insight into IBD or inflammatory bowel disease, both of which can be precursors to bowel cancer. So welcome, John. Thank you very much. Firstly, thank you, Stephanie, for your podcast and really for shedding light on this really crucial topic uh, of bowel cancer awareness, obviously in the tireless work that you do in this field. I've been listening to some of your podcasts and I've really found it very engrossing and really uh, interesting listening as well. Um, and really it's become more important in this day and age to have accurate information out there around these important topics. Uh, so as a gastroenterologist, we treat, uh, of course, conditions affecting the gut, um, so from the mouth to the anus and the organs that are involved as well, such as the liver. Well, it's so wonderful to have you on. We met a few months ago and you've done some work for us at Bowel Cancer Australia. And I agree, I think it's really important that um, we get correct information and information from specialists such as yourself, not just Dr Google. You've just touched on them very briefly, but could you take us into a little bit more depth about what um, a gastroenterologist does? Yes, of course. So more specifically, I think some gastroenterologists uh, have certain specific interests and subspecialize in specific areas. But really broadly speaking, as gastroenterologists, we, as I said, uh, treat all conditions from the gut uh, affecting anywhere apart from the mouth all the way down to where the anus is at the opening. Um, and the organs really, such as the liver, they're really crucial to digestion of food and removal of these toxic products as well. In terms of um, my specific focus, I've done a PhD in the past and in research into what's called inflammatory bowel diseases, as you alluded to, and I run an active clinical trials program at St. Vincent's in Melbourne here, looking into hopefully some treatments, novel treatments, and how do we uh, potentially address this disease, which has an increasing burden on the healthcare system. Also involved uh, as well and have an interest as well as the lead of the National Bowel Cancer Program at St Vincent's too, so where I perform uh, many colonoscopies to try to identify bowel cancers early and try to remove polyps, which of course can become bowel cancer. Fabulous. Thank you so much, John. I mean, it's quite an extensive role, isn't it? There's a lot of organs in between. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And a lot that can unfortunately go wrong as well. So really uh, interesting area and we kind of can't take ourselves too seriously as gastroenterologists either, just given that we deal with <laughs> a lot of uh, the bowel and uh, fecal content. So in a lot of ways, I really enjoy the work, but also most gastroenterologists uh, yeah, don't uh, find 
and themselves, um, you know, to take themselves too seriously in that way too. Which I think is why we are also doing this podcast and at Bowel Cancer Australia, we try to demystify that because you are dealing with poo essentially in very crude terms. (laughs) We need to demystify that. It's a we all do it. It's something that we really need to focus on. And I know when I was going through bowel cancer, uh, I said to my surgeon, I said, why bowel cancer? And what was the interest? And he said, it's actually a really fascinating, the bowel is such a fascinating organ, because I suppose it, it does affect you in so many different ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is absolutely right. The stigma that's around the bowel and bowel movements uh, needs to be broken down, hopefully to uh, talk really in very simple and normalised ter- terms, really, when it comes to patients and um, any individual, as you say, you know, does it, uh, but addressing it in in terms, hopefully, that we can make it as normal as possible and discussing around the table, uh, you know, I'm not saying dinner table necessarily. It happens at <laughs> the dinner table in our house. <laughs> <laughs> Similarly as well. Uh, and part of what I found really interesting was actually, you know, it starts from when they're young. I have a six and a 10-year-old and really talking about it to them um, is also really important as well. So uh, whether or not they're struggling to go, whether they're having the, the stools are normal at the moment, whether they've noticed any blood in the stools, or mucus, all of those things are questions, uh, you know, I ask my kids uh, even at the age, tender range of six and ten, and I, I get often very honest answers. And I think at a certain time in our lives, unfortunately, uh, we start to lose that, whether we're told, oh, no, it's a, you know, dirty word, we're not talk about, not to talk about poo, not to address that, it's a, it's a dirty problem. And then that, of course, leads to the language around uh, that as they grow up or as kids grow up into adults, you know, not really addressing the issues. And part of that can, of course, have consequences such as diseases of the bowel that get diagnosed uh, later than it should be, rather than being addressed hopefully earlier, picked up earlier, and therefore treated earlier as well. Yes, my son was two and a half when I was diagnosed. So, who is a constant conversation? In our house, mind you, he's a 13-year-old boy, so poos and farts are very funny. But it's interesting, at what point do we change? Because I know when I was growing up, I wasn't to talk about it. And and I often wouldn't go to the toilet at school or anywhere else. I would wait till I was home. So I think the younger we have that conversation and change the next generation will hopefully be uh, better for all of us. Can you talk a little bit more about your specialised area of inflammatory bowel disease, which is Crohn's disease, and I'm going to try and pronounce this the right way. It is a mouthful. You can say it for Ulcerative colitis. Thank you. Thank you, John. (laughs) Um, And again, also thanks for shedding light on, on this as well. Inflammatory bowel disease really is a spectrum of chronic autoimmune inflammatory diseases that affects the gastrointestinal tract and includes these two diseases called ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, which are the most common. And this disease now affects close to 100,000 Australians and can be extremely debilitating with almost about half of patients on immune suppressant medications that is required in order to try to control the actual disease course. Um, and this inflammatory bowel disease causes inflammation, as the terminology alludes to, of the gut lining, which can result in quite deep ulcers at times. 
And with ulcers, it can, of course, cause severe pain and significant issues such as bleeding to the gastrointestinal tract that is passed, of course, later on down the line through the bottom, along with the need, of course, to then run to the toilet because the gut is no longer functioning normally and doesn't absorb, let's say, some of the nutrients and also the water back into the actual blood and circulating system. And so it ends up being very watery stools with the need to run to the toilet multiple times during the day with fecal urgency. And at its worst, of course, is incontinence as well for, for young patients. And it does affect the younger patients. Um, it's also caused by a combination potentially of both diet and genetics. And this ulcerative colitis more specifically affects the large bowel lining that's usually continuous from the opening of where the anus is uh, towards the cecum where the appendix is and can stop anywhere along that length. Well, Crohn's disease affects anywhere along the gastrointestinal tract that is from the mouth all the way to the anus because the lining of the gut actually is all very similar all the way from the mouth to the anus, just in different varying thicknesses at various different times. So it can be patchy and occurs often in the area of the small bowel that joins to a large bowel called the ileum, that is Crohn's disease. So with ulcerative colitis, it mainly causes urgency, lots of bowel movements and bleeding through the bottom. While Crohn's disease can often present with a lot of pain, weight loss, and at times also increasing bowel movements as well. So it is uh, both of those diseases, um, you've, you've touched on them being younger. Do older people experience this later in life or is it predominantly younger people? The, the older people or subset of older people do get um, inflammatory bowel disease as well. We sometimes see a second peak, usually let's say in the 40s and 50s with inflammatory bowel disease. And in that sense also, there used to be an idea, a thought anyway that perhaps that older people didn't get the disease as severe as those who had it <clears throat> when they were younger, but that's starting to actually be uh, less true of the fact that when they've looked at um, certain studies where patients have had a later onset of disease, the pattern and severity of the disease is in fact almost similar to those who have it younger on in their life. Those who have it very young or <clears throat> there's a certain even smaller subset, rarer subset, which involves very strongly their genetics, a very young onset, uh, it's called inflammatory bowel disease, uh, have a, a very strong genetic predisposition towards inflammatory bowel disease and in some cases need very significant immune suppressant very early on. And in one case or a couple of cases that have been reported actually had some uh, treatment genetically speaking and, and did result in an improvement through stem cell therapy. So you, you talk genetics and obviously with bowel cancer, if you have Lynch syndrome that's connected with bowel cancer, is there genetic testing for IBD? Again, a very good question. Not yet, actually, at the moment. Numerous uh, what we call genome-wide association studies have been done to try to delineate whether there are strong uh, markers where the genes can predict for um, the onset of inflammatory bowel disease. However, through these studies, they have identified there are certain markers that do link and are associated with it, but they're not so accurate yet to be able to uh, diagnose 
inflammatory bowel disease will be used as a diagnostic tool. We are trying to use it in smart ways through gene testing to try to differentiate whether patients maybe can respond to drugs uh, that might be targeted towards inflammatory bowel disease. But that's certainly something that hopefully will come out in the future as technology improves. So is IBD then a precursor for bowel cancer? In a way, yes. And this is because of the fact that if the disease is left untreated, like bowel cancer in a lot of ways, then it unfortunately leads to acceleration of the damage to the tissue lining. And when you have acceleration to the tissue, damage to tissue lining, that leads to be more cell turnover. And the turnover of cells we know leads to certain mutations that can happen. And if those mutations then multiply, in effect, that's what leads to the bowel cancer or the precursors to bowel cancer called dysplasia. And so inflammatory bowel disease uh, can lead to increase in this precancerous lesions um, and polyps as well, which then results in bowel cancer. But we know that's because of the active disease that is left untreated. If treated, however, patients uh, will often go into remission and when they're in remission, their risk of bowel cancer, we know, is similar to any other patient in the community who, who doesn't have inflammatory bowel disease. So some of the symptoms sound very similar to bowel cancer. Are there differentiations or it, does a colonoscopy then distinguish what disease you may have? That's right. And so inflammatory bowel disease, maybe we can break it down <clears throat> in a little bit more detail and the nuances re regarding uh, this as well in terms of then teasing out whether or not um, there are differences to bowel cancer. But inflammatory bowel disease causes a number of symptoms that vary, as we said, from loose, urgent bowel movements that contain blood to abdominal pain with abdominal bloating and weight loss. That all sounds very familiar as mm. with bowel cancer, of course. And there are many symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease also that at times also cross over with irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, which a lot of your listeners will probably know uh, about as well and have been told maybe they had that <clears throat> prior to uh, having a diagnosis of bowel cancer. And IBS does not, however, come with inflammation in the gut lining like IBD or inflammatory bowel disease and it's caused by various mechanisms such as diet and stress from the gut-brain axis. So there are also, in about 30% of cases, what we call extra gut manifestations or non-gut-related inflammation that affects other parts of the body, such as joints with swelling of the joints. They have eye redness and, in some cases, skin changes. And usually that, of course, isn't uh, seen in bowel cancer as much as in autoimmune inflammatory bowel disease. And so there's still... Also, very much more to, to learn and discover about this disease uh, and specifics of this disease. But as you rightly point out, the gold standard for diagnosing is still a colonoscopy at the end of the day um, and also a gastroscopy at times with Crohn's disease because it can affect the upper gastro tract and the stomach in particular. And by doing both of these, we can obtain a tissue sample through what's called a biopsy and this tissue sample gets looked at for certain uh, patterns of disease, which includes the ulcers, 
and how long the disease has been going for, which we can get a clue based on the types of cells in the actual biopsy itself. We then can know with great certainty, of course, that um, it's not cancer by just visualising the gut lining itself and uh, with the sample of the tissue. A step in terms of how it's diagnosed as well, I might just talk about that in brief too. There are a few tests as well that the, your gastroenterologist or your GP will be familiar with in terms of non-invasive testing or in the lead-up to a colonoscopy too, starting with blood tests to try to look for inflammation along with, say, iron studies to look for a, a lack of iron to try to rule out other causes as well, such as celiac disease or thyroid dysfunction. And then moving on to faecal investigations. The faecal testing is first done to rule out infection, which uh, also is really important to do, uh, especially if a patient's grumbling along with uh, some abdominal symptoms. And there's a, been a real breakthrough test that uh, your listeners may know of, and hopefully I can talk a little bit about now, called faecal calprotectin in recent years. What this has done is has allowed us as uh, doctors, <clears throat> health professionals, to delineate and detect inflammation in the stool. This allows us often to determine whether a more invasive test is required if it's seen to be a normal or negative result. So there could be infections or indeed, however, bowel cancer that can cause this reading to be elevated. And so it's not just inflammatory bowel disease that can result in a elevated reading of fecal calprotectin. In some cases, we find actually um, that it's very sensitive, in fact, for picking up bowel cancer. And in fact, this fecal calprotectin test uh, can be also quite sensitive if the FOBT might come back as a negative result too, as a confirmatory test. There's also now a relatively non-invasive tool that we use called intestinal ultrasound, a little bit different to the ultrasounds that some of your listeners might have had again, um, where they've looked for organs like the liver, the kidneys, the spleen. And so this non-invasive test called intestinal ultrasound is performed by trained gastroenterologists. It can be done at most large centres in Australia to help to rule out inflammatory bowel disease along with the use of more invasive tools like gastroscopies and colonoscopies. And depending on the location of disease, it actually can detect thickening of the bowel as well. But as I said, the, the gold standard is still very much the biopsy, sample of tissue, you know, detect the disease. When it comes to the treatment, and really starts with a range of dietary and medical therapies, and in the end, the discussion surrounding diet is still a very much emerging one, but we know that diet has a role, of course, in our gut and the microbiome, which is the, uh, the gut uh, microbes that live along the gut lining and help to break down food and or in some cases of course can become pathologic as well or problematic which then can result in ulcers and issues to do with uh, the gut lining and so i think a, a discussion around diet and improved uh, diet with a decrease in processed foods is seen to be important much as is with uh, inflammatory bowel disease with as with other gastrointestinal diseases, and then medical therapies, where medical therapies can range from things which can be taken orally as well as rectally uh, therapies as well, called topical therapies. 
Now, the oral medications, again, can also range in terms of the degree of immune suppression to the body. And they can start with initially very, inverted commas, gentle medications, which mainly go to the gut lining, or they can be more what we call systemic medications, which then affect uh, some of the production of immune cells, which in case of inflammatory bowel disease, unfortunately, is dysregulated and causes an overreaction to the gut lining and destroys the gut lining. So we, uh, we have a lot of emerging drugs now and a lot of safe options too, which I think requires a, a, a strong discussion with the gastroenterologists about all of the options which are available via the PBS. And we also have, of course, clinical trials, um, which we're all now familiar with after all the vaccine studies have been done uh, with you know many new <clears throat> drugs about how we can use these drugs uh, with greater effectiveness as well. Joyce, I know you're very passionate about patient-centric care. So you mentioned, you know, discussing with your specialist. That's a really important point, isn't it? To, to work together to get an optimal outcome. 100%. I think that oftentimes, uh, you know, we might be all guilty of working individually as silos and maybe not bringing, as a specialist, not bringing the patient along uh, for the journey, so to speak. It is the patient's journey at the end of the day. And I fully uh, believe in the fact that you you need full, you know, buy-in from the patient in regards to the, the management um, moving forward. And if the patient's unengaged in the process or have, of course, other intervening factors that might be affecting them at that particular point in their life, then the management uh, needs to be perhaps altered in order to try to adapt to the patient's needs at that particular time. Um, so, for instance, uh, in as this disease, as we said, affects many young patients, the mental health is a crucial aspect that we know <clears throat> and do have to discuss with patients because oftentimes there are very strong links with stress and how it might impact on the gut. Um, it can, of course, flare in irritable bowel syndrome and symptoms like uh, similar to inflammatory bowel disease. It then can result in disengagement, of course, with a particular management plan. So I always <clears throat> talk about mental health with patients and try to address uh, stress at, at multiple time points, and in particular to try to obtain as much of the history um, at multiple points in relation to their uh, social life, whether they have good supports around them. And that helps as well because ultimately when it comes to any medical therapies that you might want to engage patients with, that uh, maybe their family members or their friends um, can also be brought along for that journey as well. So I think it's absolutely crucial uh, to understand where the patient's at and meet them where they're at at that particular time in their lives. I want to touch on colonoscopy because obviously that is an important way of diagnosing if some of the other areas uh, don't work. Can you talk us through a good bowel prep, for example, and the importance of having a good bowel prep? Absolutely. Having gone through uh, a colonoscopy myself, I definitely know what the process is and, and empathise with my patients. I also uh, had to take all of the bowel prep and understand how difficult it is uh, and, you know, with the volume 
bowel preparation. But really bowel preparation is as important, I think, and I say to patients, as the procedure itself. It's entirely dependent, of course, on the patient too in order to read and understand the steps. And so in much the same way, I think it's important for us as <clears throat> your specialist and your gastroenterologist to discuss that with uh, each patient and ensure that they fully understand the importance of it and also how to take all the medications at that particular time. Um, and starting first, really, with the dietary changes, ensuring that three to five days out from a colonoscopy, one needs to start to simplify the diet and avoid um, things which will take a long time to move through the gut and can potentially then be seen when we perform the colonoscopy. So things like seeds and nuts or the uh, fruit skins in particular, they take a while to get through. Um, and so oftentimes, unfortunately, if uh, we do a colonoscopy, they do end up blocking the channel um, on which we suck uh, the fluid through in order to clear out the gut lining. So having a low residue diet or in some cases a white diet, which is equivalent to low residue diet, can be possible in the lead up to the colonoscopy. And then following on from this, it's purchasing the bowel prep drink and a few days beforehand and ensuring that it can be made up with all of the things around the house uh, and, and potential um, jugs and things such as lemonade or even having a clear jelly made up uh, can be good preparation. Now, the drink isn't fun, but it's a necessary evil. And I did do a little tweet yesterday to try to see if... <laughs> I noticed that actually. And did, and did you get any comments back? <laughs> yeah, there were a few helpful hints. Um, in particular, I think having it chilled uh, or as cold as possible for some uh, meant that the, it was more palatable. Mm. Um, dissolving it perhaps again in a clear uh, flavoured substance um, like a lemonade was also helpful as well. And I found that in some cases with patients particularly prone to nausea that I will prescribe an anti-nauseant drug um, or in some cases a what we call a prokinetic which helps to move the gut contents through a little bit quicker, uh, particularly that can help as well in patients with constipation. Um, but certainly being near a toilet uh, is really <laughs> crucial once you start the process. And uh, having access to things like baby wipes because I think uh, the bottom gets quite chafed yeah. um, instead of the toilet paper. That's always my tip. The flushable wipes, plenty of them, and lanolin cream or something similar. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And I usually tell my patients to continue drinking clear fluids until approximately two hours before the emission time. This hydration is really crucial. And the College of Anesthesiologists, which uh, obviously are the college that determine the rules when it comes to um, uh, sedation, et cetera, have, de have determined the fact that it's safe to keep drinking clear fluids until approximately two hours before the emission time. And a really important uh, maybe thing to focus on as well for this uh, segment is to uh, talk about the changes because the colleges instead of anesthesiologists, uh, the anaesthetists of Australia, in fact, have looked at all of the data. And we know that for uh, liquid substance, clear liquid substances, it can actually travel through the stomach within the two hour timeframe. Uh, 
so by the time that one is admitted into the hospital, there's maybe an added extra hour on top of that. Uh, it comes to roughly about three hours and that is enough time for all of the liquid content to be passed through. It's different for solids. I would definitely uh, agree with that for continuing to fast from solids or stop all solids at least six hours, six to eight hours before the actual procedure time itself. But I very much encourage now clear fluids uh, and that's anything that's clear, of course. So if you have milk in any of the fluids that won't stand up unfortunately the procedure have will be cancelled if patients do turn up having had tea with milk in it and so any clear fluids can be taken up to two hours before the emission time uh, quite safely now so two questions there's a good prep and there's a bad bowel prep and i've had both <laughs> and i thought i'd done the same thing but clearly i hadn't so why is it that you must do a good bowel prep? And then the second question is uh, around the solution on what happens if you can't drink all the solution because it is a lot to drink it at, uh, at that time that you're um, given. Definitely. It's, it's the part, as I said, it's absolutely crucial. Uh, we as doctors are really reliant on our patients to complete all of the processes and tasks. And I say to patients that it's possibly as important as the colonoscopy itself. And there's good evidence that says that good to excellent bowel preparation as determined by how clean the bowel lining is or how much we can see of the bowel lining means that there is less risk of uh, complications, which is bleeding and, and perforation, which is a tear to the bowel lining, along with more detection or increased detection of these precancerous polyps and also cancer as well. If you imagine if there's a lump of poo or lump of feces, which happens to just be covering that polyp, uh, this could possibly, of course, then grow into a cancer in between having a colonoscopy or even result in an earlier time for the patient needing to return for a colonoscopy if the gastro or surgeon wasn't satisfied with the end result. And there's numerous studies that have also identified that about 25%, unfortunately, of colonoscopies can be poorly prepared, which then leads to higher rates of cancer, polyps undetected, and these complications. Also, the fact that it takes longer too if a bowel prep isn't clear or clean, it might mean that your procedure goes from being a 20-minute procedure to sometimes even up to an hour in order to try to clean and suck all of the bowel um, feces that is there lining the bowel. And also, if you haven't prepared properly, sometimes you can't perform the colonoscopy and that's a, a wasted window, I suppose, that could be used for someone else. And with colonoscopy wait times out of control, that impacts the system, doesn't it? You're certainly right there. I think with the wait lists at the moment in, in a lot of public hospitals, which I work at and also hear from my colleagues at other public hospitals blowing out because of COVID, sadly. Um, we need to do as much as we can, of course, to try to optimise our lists. And yeah, I'm incredibly uh, yeah, passionate about, obviously, trying to make sure that we try to get the best colonoscopy done uh, once for the patient and with best quality as well. So it's absolutely crucial. We try our best not to cancel or, or um, have to repeat the procedure. And so in a lot of cases, we do 
try to flush the bowel and try to cleanse the bowel as much as possible. But and sadly, if there are is or is solid uh, fecal content, then we can't proceed because it's not safe to do so. And also, we can't make strong conclusive statements such as the fact that there is there are no cancerous polyps or cancer in the bowel, and, and hence it does need to be repeated, um, which unfortunately does, as you say, take up another slot um, for another patient. The intense nature of colonoscopies also means that there are limited spots, as you say, with only about six to seven on a public hospital list per uh, half a day list. And so that gives us a bit of insight and only limited lists um, a year, sadly. Finally, John, I like to ask those people that I interview uh, to provide three things that they would like their patients or the listeners from today to take from the discussion. So what would your top three be from today's podcast? Starting with inflammatory bowel disease, um, these are autoimmune diseases that affect the, the lining of the gut and can be extremely debilitating and affect patients in the prime of their lives. Um, I would say work with your gastroenterologist, of course, if you have this disease, come up with a strong plan to try to diminish inflammation, and that's absolutely crucial to try to minimise these long-term poor outcomes, which can include surgery and, as we said, bowel cancer. There are also newer agents of drugs now, which have been through rigorous clinical trials and demonstrate a lot of safety and effectiveness as well. So if you are on an older drug that is maybe not working, um, these drugs are now more targeted in some cases to the gut lining, which then can offer safety benefits as well as longer-term uh, improved outcomes. And the treatment options have really expanded in the last five years. My last thing is also keep in mind that colonoscopies are only as good as the bowel preparation. And having a colonoscopies where the bowel still has species means it will take longer, unfortunately does attract a bit more uncomfortable um, sensations perhaps, along with the chance of, of course, missing a precancerous polyp that needs a repeated colonoscopy sooner. But if you don't understand the information or if there's no, not enough clarity around it, then please contact your doctor. It is up to us as the gastroenterologist to provide that clarity or our staff to provide that clarity. And also that uh, we do have to spend that time to um, update some of our documents as well, which we know <laughs> in a lot of cases may not be that clear, particularly for other cultural and language groups. John, thanks so much for joining us on the Bottom Line podcast today. You've really given us an insight into areas outside of bowel cancer that can also lead into bowel cancer, perhaps. Really appreciate your time. I know you're an incredibly busy man. And thank you so much also for your work with us at Bowel Cancer Australia. It's a real pleasure. And thank you, Stephanie, for your time as well. And to all your listeners for tuning in today. And, and thank you for continuing your work as well. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.